The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. I have this joke, we don't have an economy, we have a housing market with bits tacked on. It certainly feels like that at the moment. Last week we talked about the problems and the possible solutions and then this week on Tuesday the Labour government announced their big housing package and the facts certainly changed in it. Some real surprises. We'll talk about that more later with Jay Kake and in particular how Māori housing advocates see this change. And also Kiwi Bank's chief economist, Jared Kerr, to dive into all of these changes and what it means for you as a buyer, maybe as a renter, and what's happening with financial markets. And even the exporters, the companies, should listen into this one. But first, before we go into the details of this week's news, I wanted to take you back in time, back to September the 16th, 2008, because it was a moment for me which changed the way I look at how governments and housing markets work in New Zealand. Up until then, and by that point I was 40 years old, I'd been covering financial markets for 15 years all around the world, and I thought that assets, so shares and property and bonds and gold and all those sorts of things, prices were set by a market. I was a bit naive in those days. (laughs) And when the markets collapsed on the night of September the 16th, 2008, when Lehman Brothers, the US investment bank, collapsed in the middle of the night, and I'd arrived at my work to read all about it, because that's what I do for fun, and then I went for a walk. It was one of those big shocks where you realise you just want to have a walk around the block. So I went for a walk around the block, right down Ponsonby Road, and it was a sort of a quite bleak morning, September 2008, just off the tail end of winter, It was really messy and there weren't too many people around and they didn't look like they knew the news. And I thought to myself, having watched financial markets for 15 years, having seen what happens when financial markets collapse, that New Zealand's housing market was about to collapse as well. It made perfect sense because house prices had risen incredibly fast in the previous five years. In fact, I was still in shock that the median house price in Auckland, wait for it, had risen from 273000 in 2003 to 424000 in 2008. And I thought that was a crazy price. And a lot of other people did too. Back then, people were paying 10% mortgage rates. And a lot of people thought, you know, when we have a, a crisis like that and the market collapses, prices will slump because that's what's happened in the past in New Zealand and in other places and in other types of asset markets because the financial markets and the powers that be in the United States had done the right thing. They had let a bank collapse. They hadn't jumped in and rescued it, and that was Lehman Brothers. However, in the next two days, everything changed, and it actually changed my view about how financial markets and the global economy worked and flipped me from being a bit of a you know, neoliberal, free markets kind of guy to someone who's now often incredibly cynical about how governments work with markets and what actually happens when there's a threat of prices falling. Because in the next few days, 
the global financial system was effectively rescued from collapse when the US Federal Reserve lent AIG close to $80 billion to make sure that it didn't collapse like Lehman Brothers. And then over the next few days, it slashed interest rates and in the subsequent five years engaged in three episodes in money printing. Now, New Zealand isn't immune from this. Not a lot of people know in New Zealand that the Reserve Bank actually lent our own banks $9 billion in very cheap money when they needed it most, when they couldn't get access to it. So in effect, our central bank in particular rescued our housing market and global central banks rescued financial markets in 2008. They didn't let things fall. And that surprised me. I thought things would go back to normal and that this would all be normalised and that the uh, rescues, the bailouts would stop. But actually, it established a pattern that continued right through up until the beginning of COVID, when central banks around the world printed not just a lot of money, astonishingly a lot of money. In fact, two to three times more than they printed during the global financial crisis and at much faster rates. And New Zealand's central bank wasn't any different. In fact, it did even more to rescue the housing market in 2008 when it removed the LVR restrictions in May of last year. And what I think it did was change expectations of investors that the housing market was different. Unlike, you know, the market for gold or shares where prices go up and they go down and there's no one there to rescue you when the prices fall, in New Zealand, we learnt that housing was protected. Housing was not a normal market. Housing was a market that was too big to fail. And I saw this at the end of last year in an exchange at a press conference right at the end, which told me a lot about how the New Zealand economy and the investing psyche had changed. And I think it was one of the factors in the explosion in demand we certainly saw in the last two to three months from investors who realised that the government and the Reserve Bank had their back. And it came in a series of questions from Janae Tibshraney, um, a former colleague of mine at interest.co.nz, um, who loves to talk about monetary and fiscal policy. So um, we have a lot of fun on the sidelines of press conferences <laughs> talking about monetary and fiscal policy. And right at the end, she asked Jacinda Ardern about whether the government would intervene to stop prices falling or what it really wanted when it talked about moderate house price inflation. Here's the answer and the exchange that followed from Jacinda Ardern. Essentially, we want people's incomes to be able to keep pace. You know, we saw uh, in 2018 a situation where wages were finally uh, outstripping house price growth. And so, of course, that has impacts on issues like affordability. Uh, at the same time, CoreLogic have suggested that our annualised house price growth of um, our last government was around 4%. We've recently, of course, seen that growth grow considerably in a very short space of time. So that's it's all about you know those rel that relative growth, whether or not people's incomes are keeping pace because that affects affordability. So is sustained moderation still 
the gulf? Yes, we don't want to see the significant increases, these huge jumps in house price growth. It means that it becomes out of reach for people as their incomes or their wage growth doesn't keep pace. Why would a, a fall in house prices, can you just explain why that would be a bad thing? Oh, look, what we've simply expressed here is that the growth that we're seeing is just unsustainable. And so if anything, look, it is much more sustainable to have those you know, much more, uh, much smaller increases. I think people expect that you see that um, in the market. Uh, what we also accept is that for most New Zealanders, their house is their most significant asset. So if you see, for instance, as was predicted at the beginning of the year, a significant crash in the housing market, that impacts, of course, people's most significant asset. When I go to buy um, shares, I don't expect that they will always increase. That's the part of if you do an investment, and they go up and they go down. You've gotten so to the heart of the issue. Why is it for housing? This gets to the heart of the issue of why so many New Zealanders turn to the housing market. And there we have it, the Prime Minister accepting it, saying effectively that she couldn't do much to drive house prices down because it's the main asset for New Zealanders. And people expect, and it's my job to deliver on their expectations, that they see moderate house price inflation, something around about 4%, which means that wage growth of around 5% keeps up with house price inflation. The problem is, she was saying this on December the 7th, 2020, when house prices to incomes, the multiple you look at for affordability, were already around nine times income. Now, back when I was wandering down that street in Ponsonby on September the 16th, 2008, the house price to income multiple at that point was 5.5. It is now upwards of 10.5 in Auckland. So what the Prime Minister was effectively saying is that she would not let prices fall. In fact, her aim was for continued rises in prices of around about 4%, just below the 5% growth in, in wages. That means she didn't expect to see affordability back to normal or reasonable levels. In fact, she was planning not to get them back. And that is the guts of the problem we have right now. Now, this week's package of measures, which are significant, effectively challenge that view. They, they raise the risk, and we saw that this week from economists who suggested that the removal of interest as a deductible item for tax purposes could actually see a mass withdrawal of rental property investors from the market. And you could see a quite sharp drop in house prices, 10% or maybe even more, according to one particular bank economist. However, that would in turn deliver its own reaction from the Reserve Bank and maybe even from the government. So I just wanted to challenge the government on whether or not they were really serious. Would they continue and pull all these levers, even if it meant house prices dropped sharply? And that's the question I asked Jacinda Ardern at the press conference earlier this week. She wasn't necessarily thrilled to have it. And I managed to sneak in the question uh, when she uh, wasn't expecting it. What we've been very mindful of is that, yes, we want to make sure that first home buyers get into the market. But we're also aware that that will be the biggest asset that many will ever own. 
So we want there to be stability. The house price growth that we have seen is unsustainable. It also means that housing is becoming unaffordable and is unaffordable. Uh, so we do want to see that moderation back in the market. We want people's wages to be knowing that they're able to own a home. But we also don't want a situation where we see uh, massive disruption in the value of people's assets collapse because that poses its own issues for our economy. So what she was appearing to say there is that she didn't want to collapse, yet she just announced a bunch of packages which some people think might actually cause a collapse. So I followed up and asked the question, what about? If these measures do actually reduce house prices, um, would you undo some of them to make sure that the prices don't fall? Oh, look, we need to give certainty that what we're implementing is what we're implementing, and that's today. These levers we have pulled and they will stay in place. So some fairly confident words that she'll follow through, that even if they cause a collapse in house prices, despite what she said previously, she would let prices fall. Now, there was some talk this week from Grant Robertson that a 10% fall in prices, if that's what goes on, uh, would only take prices back to where they were in November, back when the Prime Minister made her initial comments. That is true. I wonder how much resolve the government has, how much pain they're willing to take if prices do fall, and also whether the Reserve Bank is cooperative. Remember, the Reserve Bank has used a fast-growing housing market to stabilise the economy because when people feel richer, particularly as small businesses and as consumers, they're more likely to spend and keep the economy bubbling along. And we saw this week after the announcement, a couple of economists actually come out and say, if we see a real sharp slowdown in the economy because of this package, the Reserve Bank might step in and actually cut interest rates, really working against the government itself on trying to um, take some heat out of the market. And it may actually look at reversing some of that toughening of the LVR rules we saw back in November from the Reserve Bank. So the scene is set now. Will the government follow through on its big package which threatens to push prices down and to take a closer look at what this package means and what happens next in a moment we'll talk to Jared Kerr from Kiwi Bank. Welcome back Jared Kerr the chief economist of Kiwi Bank and Jared that escalated <laughs> what was your big takeaway surprise from this week's mega package of housing measures? I think the biggest surprise uh, for many of us was the reduction and you know removal of the uh, the interest deductibility uh, for for investors. I, I think that came as a as a surprise. Um, it was softened a little bit that existing portfolios have four years, but anything bought from March twenty seventh, there's there's no deductibility in that, and, and that is uh, something which a lot of investors are now uh, having to grapple with. Yeah, this was a real shock for many of those investors who've spent, you know, decades claiming tax on the interest for all of those mortgages they'd taken out. And uh, uh, I actually thought there might be some slight reduction, but the wholesale removal, albeit phased in over four years, that is a quite chunky piece of demand management for the government. How much do you think it might affect activity, prices in the market? Look, you have to say it's going to have an impact. Quantifying it is incredibly difficult. Um, 
But I think you know investors have been hit with a, a whole list of uh, hurdles now. Not only do you have to come up with a, a 40% deposit, so you've got a lot more skin in the game, your interest deductibility is gone, you've got a bright line test uh, of five years, oh, sorry, now 10 years. <laughs> um, so if I'm having to buy and sell in that time, then there's a capital gains uh, to it. it. It certainly has muddied the waters. And to say it from a mathematician's point of view, obviously the risk of uh, a slowdown and correction has gone up on the back of this. It's worth, though, considering how different the New Zealand housing market is to some other asset markets around the world, and also different to where New Zealand was even back in 2008, which was the last time we saw a significant price fall, about 10% during the global financial crisis. Uh, uh, Why won't we see what they call a gap down, you know, a significant drop in prices whenever you see one of those drivers of demand or, or supply really thump into the market. What, why not a big drop down? It's a good point. And, and yes, we're at a different period uh, and we're very different to a lot of other markets around the world for a variety of reasons that we don't need to get into. But the two reasons are, first of all, interest rates, very low. So, Introducing these uh, extra bits and pieces at a time of record low interest rates, the timing's pretty good on, on that front. It's worth reinforcing that to people because a lot of people think we're incredibly indebted and we couldn't afford even a small increase in interest rates. But when you look at the percentage of people's disposable incomes going in interest, according to the Reserve Bank, it's only about 6% of disposable income. And remember, the last time we had a shock like this global financial crisis, people were paying mortgages of 10%, 9-10%. Now it's more like 2.5-3%. Exactly. So we've taken on more debt, but the serviceability of that debt is even lower than it once was. So that's a, a key point. Um, the other point that I think we often neglect, particularly with all this talk around demand, is the fact that we're undersupplied. So when you have a market with a huge shortage, it, it is much harder to correct lower in price when obviously there's a scarcity of, of homes uh, out there. So I think that's a big pillar of support and also the fact that interest rates are, are, so, are so low. That could change and hopefully it will change in time. Hopefully we get a lot more supply coming on over the next five years and hopefully we are in a position where interest rates are being lifted in the, in the next five years and, and maybe we do see you know, house prices uh, cooling at the least. The surprise actually filtered into financial markets, which is a surprise in itself. It's pretty rare for a government announcement on a tax policy to suddenly become a financial market mover. But we saw the New Zealand dollar drop significantly, more than 2% in the 48 hours or so after the decision. And we saw a slight fall in market interest rates. Did it surprise you that, you know, the school of sharks in the foreign exchange markets pricked up their ears and wondered what was going on with this interest deductibility thing? You know I love financial markets. <laughs> I love it. And, uh, you know, financial markets, the traders uh, within them are, are incredibly quick at taking news and pricing it into into assets. And, and, and as you say, the Kiwi dollar fell because uh, interest rates in New Zealand fell uh, on, on the back of that announcement. And what the market's really saying is, given everything that was done yesterday, 
there's probably less need for the Reserve Bank to hike or hike aggressively in the future. Not only that, each rate hike from here is going to be much more potent uh, with this reduction in interest uh, deductibility or elimination of. So the markets factored that in. They factored in a slower and less aggressive uh, RBNZ tightening cycle, which, by the way, doesn't actually start, in, according to the market, until the middle of next year. And uh, that is some good news for exporters. Um, it's not often that exporters would cheer on a tax hike <laughs> effectively, but uh, that's what happened. And we got some good news on the supply side, some substantial news, uh, not necessarily announcement of new houses that are going to be built, but some sort of structural stuff underneath that. We had the $3.8 billion package of grants, so not just loans, but grants for councils and others to build the infrastructure under houses, both greenfields and brownfields. And then, of course, $2 billion for Kyingal Order to buy parcels of land to put them together to fill in the jigsaws for these bigger projects, particularly those brownfields ones where, you know, you've got one holdout piece of land. Um, boy, they should be celebrating after the government gave Kyingal a couple of billion dollars. Uh, so what's your view on, you know, how this might affect the supply outlook? Because Megan Woods came out and said, there's some modelling, we can see how uh, effective or not modelling is, uh, but she said some modelling that meant these changes could um, see 80,000 to 130,000 houses built over the next 20 years. How did you see these supply moves? Well, wouldn't that be fantastic, you know, to get that 80 to 130,000 uh, increase in supply? Because when we, speaking of models, model the uh, New Zealand housing market, we actually have a shortage of somewhere between 80 and, and 100,000. Except if we don't need them in 20 years, we need them now. Um, what I really like about yesterday's announcement is what you just said, that $3.8 billion going into an accelerator fund that councils can access to, to turn over projects faster and, and hopefully get some infrastructure done to to boost supply. That's what we need. And uh, the other $2 billion going to Kaingora to buy some land and accelerate what they want to do. Fantastic. $5.8 billion is not enough. That's the thing. If you're going to build 130,000 houses, it's not so much 5.8, just move the decimal point along a bit, 58. Uh, because um, 20 years of house building, you know, 130,000 houses, that really is not enough, is it, for all those pipes and roads and footpaths? No, not at all. Uh, and I think the government may have had its hands tied a little bit by the fact the budget's only a few months away. I would imagine there would be an extra few billion dollars thrown into it uh, in the May budget. Like I said, I really like the idea of this fund. I think it's going to help. It's definitely going to help. But it's, it's underfunded before it's even started. Um, as you said, it should be multiples of that number. And I think it's it's just going to take time for the government to pour money into it. But it's the right idea. So this is, this is great, right? This is going to help increase supply because we know that most of the problem we have in supplying dwellings in New Zealand is at the front end. It's, it's finding the land, the, the viable land, it's getting the consents with the councils, accelerating that process I think will have a meaningful uh, impact on, on supply um, and I, I think it just needs more funding. Yeah, and um, cooperation from some of the other non-government players, um, not just the developers, but also the councils and the funders. Uh, and it's interesting that this package of measures uh, made sure that rental property investors 
can still claim interest as a taxable item when they buy a new house. And also, the bright line test doesn't apply when they buy a new house. It's not clear yet for how long uh, they can continue to uh, avoid having to uh, not be able to declare interest for taxable purposes. But certainly, if you were an investor and you still wanted to do that whole rental property investor thing, you would look at some of these newer projects, the things that are bought off the plan, the things that are brand new, not so much maintenance, uh, and that will be an interesting thing, how much competition stays for those new properties and how much it pulls forward some of that supply that may now be unleashed because of these uh, underlying $5.8 billion. Yeah, what I like about uh, yesterday's statement for investors, what it really is nudging investors into new property. So hopefully we find developers going out there, getting excited and getting involved and being backed by a small army of investors who know that they're going to have a, a, re, a reduced amount of time with the bright line. I think it's five years for a new property and it is yet to be determined by the government whether they can have interest deductibility on that. And if that was the case, then that really would funnel resources from investors into new property and I think support uh, development going forward. Um, and it's diverting funding away from, I guess, existing dwellings into new, which is exactly what we want to be doing. Yeah, well, that that is a it's a, been a big week for uh, housing news. Uh, when the facts change, they certainly changed uh, this week. Um, together with Kiwi Bank, we bring you this podcast. Thank you very much, Jared Kerr, the Chief Economist at Kiwi Bank. Thank you. We'll be back in a moment with Jade Kake, who looks closely at Māori housing, and it did not get much of a mention in this package this week. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with Kiwi Bank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's Kiwi Bank economist Sabrina Delgado on the current grim status of the global and local economy. Globally, economic output and activity is slowing. Higher interest rates are weighing heavily on demand and crushing activity. It's not pretty, but it's what's needed to bring down inflation. Here in Aotearoa, the outlook is soft at best. Our impressive surge in net migration helps lift activity, but still the economy is weakening under the weight of the Reserve Bank and a softening global backdrop. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. 
Kia ora, and uh, welcome to the spin-off, Jade. We've got Jade Kake here, who is an architectural designer with her own design studio in Whangarei called Matakohe, and uh, on the side, uh, writes about and uh, advocates on housing policy. Uh, so it's fantastic you've, you've made it in here to the spin-off. Jade, welcome in. Kia ora. Kia ora. And uh, I'm keen to find out a lot more about the particular issues for... Uh, Māori uh, in the housing area, because in this big uh, housing package that came out this week, lots of big things happened, but no mention whatsoever of the Māori housing crisis. Apart from this one line in the press statement from Megan Woods, in which she said, quote, a further package specifically targeted at Māori housing is being developed for Budget 2021. So we now know the budget's on May the 20th. Could you talk about what are the big issues for Māori in housing, where, uh, in at least in the statistics, uh, home ownership is at very low levels, um, levels of housing deprivation, uh, housing register, um, mouldy, uh, uh, cold homes, all of the measures in the wrong direction and the wrong place. So what's, what's going on here? Well, as you've noted, Māori are overrepresented in all the wrong statistics. Um, all of the measures around housing deprivation, housing quality, security, um, and also home ownership, Māori are not doing well. Māori also make up around 50% of the housing register. And that register has been exploding, really, over exploding. the last year or so. Now, some uh, um, landlords would say this is because the government has made it much tougher for us to be landlords and therefore we're kicking people out before this deadline that, that came and we're being much tougher on um, tenants who come in. And, of course, those people who are discriminated against by landlords tend to be the ones who eventually have to go to the social register. Um, what are the particular problems that face many people, not just in the home ownership or the buying market, but also in the renting market? Yeah, so I think it's worth taking a few steps back and thinking about in New Zealand, we're a settler colony and, you know, around 1840, almost all the land was still held by Māori. Over time, um, that treaty agreement was not honoured and that land base has steadily been eroded, as well as the encouragement of Māori to move to cities. Um, in many cases, that was forced or coerced or it was economic realities that made that necessary. And so we've got around 5.2% of the land left in whenua Māori, in Māori ownership. And so the ability for Māori to provide for their own people is very severely limited and constrained by colonisation. And treaty breaches happen every day. It's not a historic thing. Interesting timing with this announcement is that currently the um, Kaupapa inquiry uh, relating to housing is being heard at Tapuya Memorial Marae. And so we're hearing all of these harrowing stories about crown breaches. And this is, um, although there's some historic context, this is primarily concerned with post-1991 and also the hope that there'll be some tangible interventions and changes to our housing system. I really don't see the evidence, especially in this announcement with a single line, that we're really taking housing seriously as a treaty issue. Now, let's say if they did take it seriously, what sort of things could the government look to do that would have the biggest impact? Yes, a few things. One, um, absolutely uh, bulk up their response to supporting development of housing on whenua Māori. 
There is some fantastic uh, resource and support available through Tupuni Kōkiri. It's limited. There needs to be more of that. Um, there are some great things happening with the Maihi Partnership, which is seeking to tie together the various initiatives a- across government to support projects. But again, there are still some structural barriers. So um, government absolutely needs to address kainga funeral reform, which is the only financial product available for housing on Māori land. Woefully inadequate, has been in need of reform, and Māori have been consistently calling for this. It's not a high-priority issue because, you know, it's politically insignificant. So I think we need to be keep, keep being loud about that until there's a response. Could you sort of explain that to um, those people who don't quite understand the, the legalities or the particular financing issues around Māori land and how, you know, unlike for um, a plain old land title uh, in a suburb where an owner is able to get the bank to lend them lots of money and the bank will slap a mortgage note on that title and uh, is thrilled with that. Um, it's not so easy on iwi land. Yes, um, so the complexity is that the land is still held in collective ownership. Māori land was really an interim attempt to alienate Māori from our land. So it was taking customary land and putting a title on it. And with that came um, the 10 owner rule. So you could only have 10 owners. And then, you know, it, it, it went down from there instead of being in hapu ownership. It's a complex history to do with uh, this, this particular tenure type. What it means in this day and age, and keeping in mind this is scraps of land, 5.2% that has been retained, is that banks won't lend on it. And although the government provides uh, some degree of uh, underwrite through kainga order, I think it's uh, fairly risk averse in the sense that they require you to design the home to be able to be physically removed in the event of a default. Um, so you end up with these perverse incentives. So I've been to Papa Kainga developments where you will look around and you'll say, well, that home is a kainga whenua home. I can tell because it's up on piles. That one's one that's been funded through TPK grant funding, Tupuni Kōkiri grant funding, because it's on slab. And this will be in the same project where it's all flat land. It makes sense that it all be on slab. It would be more economical, but it's creating a perverse incentive. Um, the other problem with that product is that it has a $200,000 cap, which is insane and hasn't been revised in quite some time. And you also cannot have a home smaller than 70 metres squared. What on earth is that about? We've just had the government um, rapidly increase the caps for people mm-hmm. to buy $650,000 houses in Auckland and the cap of $200,000 for a house. And you mentioned the, the 70 square metre, particular issue for medium density housing. If you had some some land where you were keen to uh, have higher densities, 70 square metres is not going to work, mm-hmm. uh, particularly if you were quite clever about how you... Um, grouped houses together, uh, included it with shared spaces, um, natural spaces. Uh, um, Tell us about how that restricts the sorts of homes that Māori might want to build. I mean, in in some ways, we've got greater opportunity because we're not seeking to divide our, our, our sections. So, yes, it's a problem, the access to finance. I did want to add another problem with that access to finance is that theoretically it's available to any lending institution. Only Kiwi Bank has ever taken it up. So there's actually zero choice. There's get a grant from Tupuni Kōkiri or get the kainga whenua loan, and you have to adhere to those restrictions because where else will you get money unless you're individually wealthy and are able to invest your own money? And so it's it's not a great situation. But in terms of design, um, for those district authorities or for those territorial authorities that do have papakainga provisions, it means that you can master plan the whole development. You don't need to think about legal title divisions, which is a real challenge because um, I've done a bit of subdivision design for iwi entities. 
and you're trying to get the social outcomes that you would get for Papa Kainga, but you're still constrained by the engineering standards that relate to the width of the road, still constrained by the, you know, the offsets from the boundaries. And so actually all of that's taken away when you're just thinking of it as a cohesive whole. So that part's really positive. Um, but some of the funding requirements are at times driving perverse design outcomes. This government seems very keen to lump its money into Kainga water. And we're hearing complaints from community housing organisations that they're not getting much time with the minister or sympathy to their appeals for capital or for uh, better arrangements with uh, rent subsidies. Uh, do you think that this um, real focus on building up Kainga Order, its capacity to build homes, has been good or bad or maybe it's an opportunity? Yeah, I think um, since inception, Kainga Order has been both the risk and the opportunity. Um, I would say to date they're broadly on the right track, um, but I still think some of these things could be strengthened. I think the big opportunity with Kainga Order from my perspective is partnering with mana whenua groups, whether that's whānau, hapu, iwi, whatever the correct scale is for that particular area developing in partnership to ensure that the development is uh, responsive to place, responsive to people, fit for cultural dynamics, uh, household configurations and um, the kind of practices of those families, whether it's, um, you know, cultural or otherwise. But um, from there, and I don't know that there's the political appetite for this, but my um, policy hot take on my wish list is if Kainga Order would develop these sites collaboratively and then have them managed, managed return. So rather than, you know, having as part of your commercial settlement the opportunity to buy this land and then have to develop it, why not develop it that way and then return it? I hope they um, uh, ask for your advice and um, you should send an invoice in for that, I would have thought, because it's a uh, really interesting idea. And Kangara shouldn't be short of funds at the moment. Um, the government's just said here's $2 billion to buy some land. Um, it seems ironic when there is land available for houses to be built on where a solution like this could be more available. Uh, you mentioned the politics of things. I'm fascinated by what I call the political economy. Why, is it, why, why don't the uh, much more efficient, um, uh, much a better for everyone's well-being. Why aren't those policies adopted? And typically it's because there's some politics involved. There's a median voter being targeted. Could you give us a sense of, you know, how home ownership and the politics of house price falls uh, is affecting, you know, how we are running policy for uh, Māori and in particular around housing? Yeah, I think, um, unfortunately, uh Pākehā culture is still reasonably individualistic and, and, and not necessarily collective. And so we've got a whole class of people who have been supported for quite some time to be able to uh, have housing as the primary asset, to make money that way, to find well-being um, for their family in that manner, and encouraged and incentivised to do so, who are now not going to vote against those interests, even if it's in the best, better, better interests of us as a society and as a country. And so that's the challenge that the government is up against is they don't want to alienate their core voter base who are by and large this property owning class, who are largely, I would say, middle to, middle to upper class Pākehā people. And um, that gets to the point where it has become one of the bottom lines, one of those red lines that politicians don't cross. And as a financial political journalists, we're all having fun at the moment, asking politicians of all flavours, do you want house prices to fall? In a way, challenging them, 
to um, deal with this core problem, which is that uh, once prices ratchet up, even though they really need to come back down again, people assume, okay, that's mine now. You can't take it away. So I was reflecting earlier, perhaps a little bit tongue-in-cheek, that actually our inability to cross that political line when it comes to house prices and private property ownership is a little bit similar to uh, gun control in the United States. And people feel very strongly that they have the right to own private property and to profit off of that, as people in the United States believe they do have the right to bear arms, regardless of the harm that might be caused. And then I thought, is that a bit hyperbolic? But actually, our homes are killing people. That's right. And the research shows tens of thousands of kids each year get admitted to hospitals with um, uh, transmissible diseases, diseases that we shouldn't have. But because of our mouldy, cold homes, overcrowded homes, they are uh, uh, they are a particular problem. Mm. Jade, thank you very much for coming into the spinoff studios. We've been talking with Jade Kake, an architectural designer and a housing advocate who's written a book called Rebuilding the Kainga uh, with Bridget Williams Books. Kia ora. Kia ora. Well, that was When the Facts Change, a new podcast from the spin-off together with Kiwi Bank. I'm Bernard Hickey. We'll come on back for When the Facts Change next week. Subscribe and you'll get all the facts as they change. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te ahe Butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.